Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and this is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're speaking with Crawford Brown from Bannock Bray, a vineyard situated in the splendid Bannockburn region of central Otago, New Zealand. You can find them online at bannockbray.co.nz. It's B-A-N-N-O-C-K-B-R-A-E.co.nz. Along with his wife, Catherine Crawford founded the Bannock Bray Winery uh, a few years ago after being a beer brewer. Uh, so he has a good story to tell us. So right now, let's go have a chat with Crawford. Well, hello Crawford. G'day, how are you Boris? I'm very well. Thank you for having us here on um, what is a truly splendid Central Otago day with uh, early November but some overnight dusting of snow on the hills and Oh, indeed, it's a bit more than a dusting, looking at that. That's pretty heavy snow up there. Yeah, yeah. It uh, happens every November, but, um, yeah, we do have an amazing um, weather down here. I almost said climate, but we don't have climate in New Zealand, of course. We just have weather. <laughs> and um, last week we were basking in 27, 28 degrees, and now a week later uh, we're back to winter again. I'm wearing the winter clothes and it's pretty pretty cold. Yeah, high of only so 12 degrees or something. Yeah, yeah. Tonight there could be um, a very nasty frost and of course frost's our biggest enemy. Um, so everybody's on tender hooks. The sky's clear, temperatures have plummeted. Uh, she could be full on t- tonight. Below us here you can see all the wind machines and they'll all start up and... Um, very noisy, it sounds a bit like Vietnam at times because these wind machines which protect us from frost are basically captive helicopters, massive big fans on top that yep. shift literally tons of air. They'll blow your hat off from 50 metres away. Right. So um, they're, they're going flat out and um, without them um, we can't grow grapes in this part of the world. Right. And a um, bit of a breeze, is that is that good if that sort of stays up? Does that help keep the... Oh, the breeze at the moment um, is, doesn't matter much, but um, if there were a breeze tonight, that's very useful, but mm. I doubt very much it'll be dead calm, I suspect. Uh, okay. And um, so we're sitting here up, up on your property with the uh, vineyard stretched out below us. And So h- how long have you been here? When did you... Well, we found the bare land all... This area around here used to be Merino sheep farm, um, but on that flat land um, that we enjoy, um, it was decided the land would be put to much better use for horticulture. One of the reasons for that was the new lake that had formed just um, in the distance there, mm-hmm. or mid-ground. It's called Lake Dunstan. Until 1993, it didn't exist. Um, building the Clyde Dam and allowing the lake to fill made irrigation water um, right on our doorstep, so right. to speak. Yep. And it opened up this possibility of all this area here um, being designated as for horticultural use. And so it was. And um, we bought a block of land, which was eight and a half hectares. Um, which I later discovered, in fact, is the median size of a central Otago vineyard. Right. So um, it shows you that we're all pretty small. Um, Yeah, we bought that block of land in 1997, which is 20 years ago, 
and we planted um, in Pinot Noir um, in 1998, 99. Mm-hmm. And then you sit back and wait, and uh, there is history, as they say. Right. Subsequently, in 2008, though, we did learn, um, and no doubt we'll talk about this a bit more later on, uh, we learned about Grunefeldina, and um, the first vines were released from quarantine in New Zealand in, in 2008. Um, we had our name down for a, a, an allocation of the very first vines released in this country, and we got a, our allocation of 1,000 vines, and we planted them, of course, in 2008. <clears throat> um, but that's the end of the planting. So, uh, so the, the two varietals for you then, Pinot Noir and the Grüner Ventliner? Correct. Yep. Um, now, like so many other people, um, we do uh, um, buy in some fruit uh, as needed. Um, one of the varieties is that we've enjoyed doing is, is Riesling. Um, so we buy a small amount of Riesling in from people who, uh, or from a grower who grows it extraordinarily well. At Central Otago? Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah, just along the road in mm-hmm. Bendigo. And uh, we have fun with our so-called white wines because obviously we concentrate on Pinot Noir. Um, but uh, we allow ourselves um, to spread our wings a little bit with um, uh, our so-called white wines. One of them is a Pinot Noir Rosé. The other is a Riesling. This Riesling, which we can talk about if you wish, is actually unique, um, and I know that's a strong word, but in fact we're the only people, it appears, in the Southern Hemisphere who makes Riesling in the style that we do. So um, we enjoy doing that. What, and, and so what style is that? Ah, <laughs> okay. Well, what we try to do, and I think we probably accomplish it, is to the very best of our ability replicate the old traditional German style of winemaking going back 200 or more years ago. So that's long before stainless steel had been invented, long before any sort of mechanisation. So indeed, um, uh, it's completely made in the wood. That old-fashioned method of winemaking is called a semi-oxidative style of winemaking, which is practically unheard of today and in many cases absolutely shunned. Um, and so, what, so what brought you to, to doing that? What, did you have... Because we can. Right. Um, a small amount um, that's not crucial to our livelihood. It's a hobby, if you like, okay. but on the side, yep. <laughs> as yeah, you yeah. say. And we could have some fun with it. Um, now, clearly making wine this way, I mean... <laughs> In terms of authenticity, we're as authentic as we can be. For instance, when the grapes get to the winery, the first thing we do with them, if they're reasoning, is to tread them the old-fashioned way. Okay. With our wow. feet. We do wear very clean boots, though. <laughs> um, and the basket press and the big screw handle and the screw it down. Right. And the juice is run by gravity into barrel and it's fermented in barrel and left on the lees until it's ready to bottle, blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, that's we do it because we just want to put our stamp on um, a wine um, 
and do our best to replicate what it might have been like. And the results are actually outstanding in the case of the Riesling. Um, it really does do um, something quite interesting to it. It doesn't affect the flavour or taste so much, um, but it certainly affects the texture. So currently we're selling our 2016 Riesling, um, high acid wine, expected to be quite sharp and edgy. Nope, all those rough edges are knocked off. And um, a descriptor for the wine that's often used is silky, and that is quite bizarre for a Riesling. So, um, yeah, that's what we do there. Um, the Grunewald Lena, um, different story there. Um, 16 years ago it was, originally we met um, a young woman called Marlena, uh, Austrian young woman. She, in fact, is, was 16 and um, a high school exchange student. And we hosted her in our home. We were living in Dunedin then for the best part of a year, as you do. And um, it was through her, or probably more correctly her parents, that we learned of this wine of her home country, which we'd never heard of. And um, we... Um, well, actually, her father um, managed to send to us a couple of cases of this Grunewald Lena. He arranged it all the way from Vienna. It arrived on our doorstep. Nice. And that was the first time we'd ever wrapped our lips around it. And um, we were very impressed by it. And from there, it's, it grew. Um, subsequently, we've been to Austria and met her folks and visited vineyards and wineries and found out more about the wine. But we were frustrated because we couldn't get stock um, to grow in New Zealand until we heard that yes there was a, a, um, a nursery growing it up under government controlled quarantine their major job was to de-virus the vines which they had a source from Austria of course coming from Europe everything's very highly diseased and can't possibly be grown in New Zealand uh, without going to jail and rightly so so um, their job was to de-virus the vines, a long, slow, tedious process, but they did accomplish it in 2008. And um, as I said, we got an allocation of a 1,000 of those vines. Mm. So at this stage, we're the only – well, there's about three or four of us growing Grunewald Lina in, in central Otago, um, but we seem to be the only ones that are um, selling it commercially. Right, okay. okay. At this stage, that'll change. And, and how did you decide on a, a place for, for putting those vines in? Had you, did it take quite a while to think about where it would best sit or did you have some? No, it was pretty it? easy really. Right. I mean, I, from here I can show you it's on the steep bank over there to my right. Yeah. Um, that was just um, uh, ground that was wasted, um, more or less. It was too steep for Pinot and that sort of thing. Mm. But, oh, a thousand vines, we could fit them on there. So we have... Um, Beautiful aspect for the grapes, um, uh, northwest facing, steep hillside, lovely for the grapes, but oh, my word, they're an awful sight for human beings to work on. Cause you, oh, it's so steep. <laughs> it's yeah. so steep. Yeah. So it's pretty horrible from that point of view, but no, it's the grapes come first, humans come second. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And um, so, so that you, obviously when you first started, you put in, you put in Pinot? Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, and that's that's what that's um, our major focus, of course. That's and was, was that already uh, then established as uh, a good Central Otago Central Otago 
varietal or was it still fairly early days? For no, it had been established by then. Yeah. Um, we were sort of 1997, we were at the beginning of the second wave, I sometimes describe ourselves. There was a smaller first wave of growers here, the pioneers, um, and that um, had been pretty well established by the late 1990s that this was one of the few places in the world where um, everything came together to allow the Pinot Noir vine to grow spectacular fruit for winemaking purposes. And even up around this particular little sub-region that was already... Oh, Bannockburn was already um, eyed as probably um, the best of the best areas. Mm. Mm. Um, and, uh, so we've got our little slice of dirt here. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So was there much here when you planted already, or was it just starting to get us... No, um, all this area um, around here was being planted within... 12 months of us. Oh, okay. It was all contemporaneous. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So as far as you can see, all the vines here are the same age. I often say to people looking out our window, you can see five different ownerships, which is pretty much true. Um, They're all within a year of each other, 97 to 99. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Once the land was opened up, it was full on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and would you would you say that um, Bannockburn has a particular um, style to it or you can identify a, a, a Bannockburn Pinot? Yeah, um, fair question. Um, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, and I'd describe it this way, that um, the fruit in this little corner of the valley here, because we are part of the upper Clutha Valley, one end of it, um, we've got mountains on three sides of us, which sort of mm. protect us. Um, its own microclimate, if you like. It tends to develop fruit which is perhaps a little more savoury um, than the rest of um, well, the country, really. Um and so our fruit and our wine is often characterised as being a little more, um, or a little less full-on fruit forward and a bit more complex with savoury characters, which with a bit of age especially involves things like um, oh, tobacco notes and cinnamon and um, the forest floor character and mm-hmm. mushrooms and, and all that funky stuff going on yeah. in the background. Um, Fruitcake, yeah, it's that sort of thing. Right, okay. Rather than um, bright, cheerful, full-on fruit. Yeah, yeah. So a bit more Burgundian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm and we're happy about that. We didn't know that that was going to be the case at the time. No, no, (laughs) well. um, that's the way it's worked out, and um, we're not complaining, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah. no, no. And so just winding back, so before you... um, came here and, and started uh, growing vines and, and making wine was had you um, what was your what was your background had you always been working on the land or um, uh, not exactly yeah interesting question since before I finished my university degree um, I've been involved in beverages right um, for most of my life I've been a brewer 
uh, working for Lion Nathan, mm-hmm. um, which has taken me all over the place. Um, did some postgraduate stuff in Scotland earlier on. Worked for associated breweries such as Labatt's in Canada. Um, worked in probably all the New Zealand line breweries. <laughs> Um, and um, spent most of my time in my hometown of Dunedin at Spatesbury. Okay. And um, that was all great. I was making beverages and uh, enjoying everything. But then, as can happen, um, in your professional life, I got promoted out of my job. And um, this was in the late 19, well, mid-1990s. And now I found myself as um, as technical director of South Island and master brewer in New Zealand and sitting in an office and I was writing reports and doing budgets and going to internal meetings and I just said, this is rubbish. (laughs) Very highly paid office boy doing administration and I wasn't making anything anymore. I wasn't involved with beverages. It was all the bureaucratic rubbish. So um, it's time to move on. And that's when this land was being opened up. Mm-hmm. And so it all fell into place. My wife, Cathy, and I had always dreamt at some stage of living finally in central Otago. Okay. Um, yeah. And, it, yeah, found a piece of dirt one day. Three days later, we'd bought it. Wow. And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> and so had you... Had a growing interest in wine or... Did oh, of course, come, yeah, 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 you know, um, alcoholic beverages, complex beverages. Yeah. Um, wine, of course, is a much simpler beverage than, than beer, but that's okay. Um, and uh, it wasn't a, a big transformation at all. I'd always been interested in wine, spirits and beer. Yeah. Um, still am, still really enjoy beer. <laughs> Especially on a hot day, <laughs> not so much today. <laughs> well, Maybe tomorrow. There's quite a bit ha- been happening recently in the in the craft beer space. Oh, absolutely, mm. it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm fully in favour of that, mm. which I can now say, having left one of the big companies. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's a very interesting and uh, very interesting world, and yeah, very enlightening. So, Crawford, what what were some of the big learnings for you in going through the whole process of planting a, a vineyard and then taking it through right through to manufacture of a wine? Yeah, okay, that's a fair question. Um, yes, <laughs> there was there was a f- couple of handicaps there because I knew nothing about viticulture. Um, I could certainly speak the language of the winemaker, having uh, being a brewer, um, there's a lot of similarities. But the actual growing of the crop you start with is totally different. I'm more used to um, barley and hops, of course, which would be a zilch resemblance to a grapevine, which is a starting point for our wine. So brand new learning curve, had to get lots of advice, which I did get. Um, there are viticulturists um, in the area. We made good use of Robin Dicey, one of the pioneers of this region and founder of Mount Difficulty. Um, and then we still retain him, or these days his son, as a, on a retainer for advice, because when it comes to viticulture, they know more about things than I do. Um, so I had to, or we both had to 
learn this new discipline of these remarkable plants that we call grapevines and learn that um, if you want to get um, the maximum out of them, you've got to put the maximum into them because they're pretty fussy and there's no grapevine more fussy than a Pinot Noir. Yeah. And, and, and so you have been doing the whole process then, so from managing the, the growing right through to... Managing the growing, I'd call myself a wine the, grower, yeah. um, not a winemaker, although I can speak the same language. So we have a winemaker, mm. um, our winemaker is Jen Parr, um, and our wine is made off-site, as is often the case with Central Targo. Most of us are far too small to have our own mm. capital cost of a winery. So um, we use the, fas- the, the facilities of, that we can find at Maud Wines in, in Wanaka. Okay. And um, they do a very good job for us. And their task is to produce the wine as to the specifications and how we say to do it. And they enjoy that. Especially the likes of the reasoning, going back to that again, treading the grapes, it's yeah. all good fun. Yeah, yeah. As you can imagine, commercially it would be horrendously expensive, yes. but that's not an issue for us, as yeah. we're doing it as a, on this, as a hobby. So, um, yeah, and we work very well together. Mm. And um, it's, yeah. And, and how about the other side of, of getting it to market? Oh, yeah, oh, that's constant battle. <laughs> Originally it was easier, um, but today there are a lot of uh, many more players in, in, the, in the field, so to speak, and um, it's a bit of a battle between the big boys and the little boys today, and um, it's really quite um, quite difficult. Um, we've found it difficult. Um, we were on the back foot from the beginning in many ways because, um, and I'm not telling you anything new here, most of your people and listeners will know that um, if you want to make a small fortune growing grapes, you need to start with a large one. And um, that is very, very true. And we did not start with a large one. So um, we've been behind the eight ball all the way through and um, it's just made things um, difficult. Um, and that's still the case, although we're very, very slowly um, doing something about it. Um, so that's a that's a hurdle that we've had to cross and shared with many others. And the mix of domestic sales to international for you is that? It varies. Um, we have sold as much as twenty percent of our output um, in, in export sales. Um, but um, it's, at the moment it happens to be less than that, perhaps because we're not um, producing so much fruit um, as we used to, um, because we've had to sell part of the vineyard to, mm. to exist. Mm. Um, so um, that's variable, um, but it's also optional. I mean, we can choose to what extent we want to send wine overseas Mm. Um, it's again there's a cost associated with that because to do it properly you really do need to visit your clients on a semi-regular basis and make them feel loved and wanted 
Um, that's perfectly natural, and it's a nice thing to do, but it is expensive. Hmm. And um, if you're only selling a relatively small amount of wine, um, the cost per bottle becomes prohibitive. Hmm. If you're selling millions of bottles, it's not a problem, but that doesn't apply to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, is, it must be quite satisfying to see your product uh, being enjoyed overseas. And, uh, of course it is, yeah, 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 yeah very yeah. much, very satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. And obviously we've, we've talked about Riesling and, and Gruner Vetlina. Is there anything else um, outside of what you're doing that you're, you've seen going on in maybe Central Otago or elsewhere that, is you know, piques your interest that, or you think is is quite a good thing for um, someone to be doing? Or well, it, it gives. I think it's important that um, in any industry it remains innovative um, rather than stuck in some sort of time warp. And um, in New Zealand, um, we do have no matter what it is a history of innovation and no willingness to willingness to experiment. And I think to some extent that's applying to wine. <coughs> For instance, we were right in the forefront of using screw caps as a closure. And um, like many people, we started off using cork way back in the beginning of the century. Um, but we'll never use cork again. <laughs> um, I sometimes describe it as 1,500-year-old technology. We have advanced and um, the screw cap technology is just magnificent in terms of keeping the wine as perfect as you can for as long as possible. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah. I remember the conversation about it when it was coming in, but it's one of those things that because it was just such a good idea, um, it almost the the argument disappeared pretty quickly, didn't it? And once people were <laughs> were unscrewing bottles and drinking it, and it, the consistency of Oh, look, you're absolutely right. The proof's in the, proof of the pudding's in the eating, yeah, the yeah. proof of the wine's in the drinking. Yeah. Um, it's a no-brainer, really, um, unless you've got many hundred years of tradition behind you, mm. and that can be a bit hard to change. But, mm. um, but that applies to mostly um, in the United States of America and Europe, and, you know, you shrug your shoulders and say, well, they're Americans and... Europeans, that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just move on. <laughs> the uh, question we like to finish on is, if you could have any glass of wine with anyone, um, living or dead, or uh, maybe it doesn't even exist yet, um, what wine would it be and, and who, would you, who would you have it with? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You've done um, your homework. I've given that actually some thought because that was an, that's an interesting question. That, that is an interesting question. Um, and um, it made me really sit down and think what, what, what would I like to do? And, um, and I've decided I'm going to answer this question this way. Um, I. I'm pretty interested in the history and evolution of of anything, um, which includes wine. And I have been aware for a long time that wine actually began, as best as we can tell, around about 3,500 BC in the area which we now call Lebanon. And um, 
So Lebanon is really um, the origin of wine as we know it, grape wine. And it seemed to me to make sense that uh, it would be really nice to, at some stage in the theoretical future, um, sit down with some interesting people who uh, share the same interest as I do in, in where things come from and enjoy a glass of Lebanese wine made from fruit which is as near as possible, as close to the original vines that grew in Lebanon as far as we know. Mm. So um, I've, I'm cheating here because I wrote down some notes because I can't remember the words. Um, there are two varieties of grape and I'm not sure I can pronounce them properly here, but go back 5,000 years. Um, Obida and Merva. And um, these two grapes varieties are still in existence in Lebanon. And it's believed that their antecedents, that, um, uh, well, no, yeah, I suppose that's the word, are thought to be the parents of um, modern Chardonnay and Semiel. Ah. I didn't know that until I looked it up, but it's white wine, and um, it'd be just fascinating to drink some wine of from from then. Um, so I don't think, you know, if the likes of you, Boris, and I, and uh, a few of our other friends that we know in the wine industry, um, got together and we sourced some of these bottles of wine and drank them and. and um, I don't. I get the feeling that I don't think we'll be overwhelmed with the joy and pleasure of this magnificent wine. <laughs> I think it might be pretty ordinary, actually, <laughs> and nothing spectacular. Um, but nevertheless, we're drinking history. Yes, and um, it's. I think that would be a, a, a fascinating thing to yeah. do sometimes. So I yeah. hope to do that, but I don't know. I don't know where you go to buy. Abida and Merva wine in New Zealand. No, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> but that, oh, I, yeah, that, that's great. I think that would be um, completely, completely fascinating. To it would that. be, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Well, that's a um, that's a superb answer. Well done. <laughs> Haven't had that before. Oh, okay. Um, which is what I like about the question. We've never had the same the same response twice, which is really good. I will. Um, Thank you, Crawford. I do appreciate your time and um, for hosting us here. It's been great. Oh, it's a pleasure to meet up and um, same to you. Very All the good. best. Yeah, and thanks for putting on such a great day for us. Oh, <laughs> lovely day out there in the cold. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's completely memorable. Very good. We've been speaking with Crawford Brown from the Bannock Bray Winery in Bannockburn, Central Otago, New Zealand. You can find out more about the winery at bannockbrae.co.nz. That's B-A-N-N-O-C-K-B-R-A-E.co.nz. And also be sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts. We were talking with other vineyard founders and owners and winemakers and lots of other people with great stories to tell about the wine industry here in New Zealand. Thanks for listening in. Hey, corner mai. Bye for now. <laughs>